Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he went up, got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in a field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so the father went out and pleaded with him. He, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father replied, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. You know, one thing I didn't mention when we started this three-week journey through the story of the prodigal son was the context. Why did Jesus tell this story? What precedes it? Uh, it is a trilogy of three stories that each have something lost. There is a sheep. A shepherd has a hundred sheep. One is lost. So he leaves the 99, goes looking for it. Another time a woman loses a coin. She's got 10 silver coins. She loses one. What does she do? She lights the lamp. She does not rest until the coin is found. And then this story, the story of not one, but two lost sons. Why did he tell a trilogy of stories about things that are lost, the person who lost it searching until it's found, and then all three stories ending with a party, a celebration, an invitation to come and and, and join into the joy of the one who had lost something of great value and then recovered it. Why these stories? Who's he talking to? What's the context? Well, we don't have to wonder, guys. 
The context is given in Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, which says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know, they notice it. Their, their problem is they're muttering. They're not celebrating, which is the whole point of the parables is to invite them into the celebration of discovering what was lost again, finding it, of what was dead being resurrected back into life. Um, and so there's no question whom this question, who this parable is for. It's for those who are on the outside, who place themselves on the outside of community in judgment and condemnation. Jesus is speaking of the two ways we can rebel against God. One is by saying, give me my inheritance. I want to go someplace far away from you outside of, of relationship with you. And then the other who says, yeah, but I kind of want the stuff. I kind of want the benefit. So what do I need to do to maintain a relationship so that I can eventually inherit? They both kind of want the same thing, uh, as we find. They, neither of them are particularly interested in a relationship with the Father. They just want, they just want the stuff. And what Jesus tells us is there's two ways. One, that is obvious. One, that is really subtle and hard to see. It's the sin, broadly speaking, of, of self-righteousness. And there's a mistake I think we often fall into as good 21st century, first quarter, no, halfway through the second quarter of 2023, a third of the way into it anyway. Um, and that is to think that religion is the problem. But this is a mistake. Jesus was religious. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He went to festivals in, in Jerusalem to celebrate. He prayed regularly. He memorized scripture. He was part of a community. His coming out party of the Messiah was in a synagogue where he read from Isaiah. He participated in the religious ritual of the reading of scripture and, and read it and talked about its fulfillment. Among them, he, he quoted scripture. He prayed scripture. He was religious. The problem isn't religion. The problem is bad religion. The problem is when we use religion in, in faith in ways that, rather than shaping ourselves, shape the world around us to make us feel better about ourselves. What is actually the dark side of religion? What is... Well, the short answer is it's self-righteousness. It's when religion is used so that you can feel some level of superiority to other people. That's not, that's not what Jesus did with his faith. That's that what he wanted to do is return us to the original intent of the law. But there's, there's all sorts of games we play. You know, it's, it's, like, it's almost as if we can't form an identity without contrasting it to someone else that we feel less than. Like, you know, why do we... I don't know, buy BMWs, you know, other than to feel superior. I'd, I almost made that joke next door, but I did it. I didn't make that next door because I know there's some Beamers in the parking lot, and, uh, but the, I, I did hear that the, the new edition's going to have turn signals. Um, anyway, um, there's all, look at it. But see, do you see what I'm doing? I'm doing the thing. I'm, I'm using real people to feel superior about myself, and that's what we do all the time with our, with our income. You know, we feel... You know, we may, you know, those, those who are at the top of the food chain, you know, in this country make 20, 30, 50 times their workers, and they actually feel like, I may make 40 times more than you do, but I only feel 20 times better than you. So that's, that's growth, right? And, and there's, there's ways in which, and it's, it's basically, as I was thinking about this through, um, 
the lens of parenting teenagers, it's almost as if middle, we never actually leave middle school. We all are finding ways to declare who we are to the world, and that the way that we tend to do that is by saying there are these bad, evil, wicked people that I am not like, and so by pushing them down, I raise and lift myself up. It's an old game. There's nothing new to it. What Jesus is saying is don't bring God into that game because this is a story to illustrate God does not play by those rules, by the rules of self-righteousness, of superiority. Um, and what is easy for me to do as I picture this scene, I picture Jesus telling a story, I picture those who are publicly identified as furthest from God, seeing the closest to Jesus. And those who are identified publicly as the closest to God, standing as far away from them as they can to still be able to hear those words. And, you know, if you see the story, you see, uh, you know, when he tells, particularly when he tells the story of the prodigal son, the whole front row is weeping. They're there. They, they, just, they just came home two days ago, and it's still fresh, and they're, they're in tears. And as you go back, you see the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and there's all this joy in the front. There's all the, these deep, heavy emotions of being seen, celebrated, loved, welcomed home. But in the back are the teachers and the, of the law, and they have a posture of arms folded. They're closed. However you picture a closed person, arms folded, turned slightly, whispering. And if you're a lip reader, you see them whispering, that's heresy. What about sin? What are, God's holy. They're whispering to one another, sin, condemnation. And the mistake we meet that I've made whenever I read this story is hating the people in the back, of condemning the condemners, of feeling moral, morally superior to those who feel morally superior. That I find, in, even in studying the audience of this parable, that I'm looking at them from the position and of the posture of the older brother, who feels superior, who feels like he's in the front, wink, wink, nod, nod, to Jesus. Now let me, as a, as, as a reminder to us all, there is no human being that has ever lived that Jesus hates. There's nobody that Jesus would say, that person is my enemy. These are words, logic, that are not in God's heart at all. They're in my heart, which is why I need to hear this story. Because the last move as we seek to, to experience God's love and forgive as we're forgiven is to forgive the self-righteous and to be, want to join in a, a party of reconciliation with those whom we consider to be the, the, those who look down on us from on high. He loved them. And he's calling us to love them too. Whoever them is. Oh, I never thought I'd say that sentence. Whoever them is. In context, I think it's grammatically correct. Word would disagree with me and would underline it blue. So, how do we know this is true? How do we know that this is God's heart? Well, who told this story? Lest I remind you, who's telling a story of people coming home that by giving the context of it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that he's directing this towards, that he's inviting home to? The older brother is invited to come home. And what... We know this to be true because of the unique nature 
this parable ends. Did you realize, did you see that this parable ends without resolution? How? So, we see the older brother who is, sorry, I'm just making sure I didn't skip something. Well, all right, what does the older brother say? What's his response? He's been given, a, there's a party raging for his brother. He's returned home. Um, and he says to him, the, so this is the older brother, the older son talking to his dad. After all these years of slaving for you, I've never disobeyed your orders. But you've never given me so much as a goat to celebrate with my friends. Do you hear the bitterness in the voice. Have you ever, you know, many of us are parents. Have you ever had parented a kid that's like, you never did this for me that you did for the other? I mean, I think as, it's hard not to read this as a parent. Uh, but, it, it, but, but what I have to see is, is this within myself. There's this bitterness, this anger. I did everything right. I never left home. I did everything you asked. I worked like a slave for you. And you never gave me a goat. You never acknowledged me. You never did any of these things that you're doing right now for him. For, for your son, can you hear that anger, that entitlement that he, he has and, um, towards the father? And the father reorients or invites into a different way of understanding. So the older son is having what he's deprived of, looking at his work, and looking at what he's gained from his work. So what are the first two words the father says to him? The first two words he says are, my son. He pushes against the older brother's claim that he is a slave and a worker. And he says, you've never, ever been my employee. You're not my employee. You're my son. You've always been with me. He's not hurt. He's not passive aggressive. I sometimes like to write myself into the stories. And so I, the dialogue I would give in this, this story after the, the older son's complaint would be something like this. Oh, oh, I'm sorry that all my wealth, the palace, the way I've taken care of you since an infant wasn't enough for you. I'm sorry you wanted more. I didn't know that all you needed was a goat, <laughs> that that would have satisfied you. Here, let me, let me good people over here. Hey, he's the good one, everybody. Is that what you want to hear? Like, I would be so passive aggressive in, the, in this moment. And part of, that's what part of this story reveals to me is how passive aggressive I am. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you didn't get a goat. And, but what he, again, what's in my heart is not in God's heart. And there's no better news you're going to hear this week than that. <laughs> like God's heart's not like mine uh, or, or any of ours. And he loves the older son with the same unconditional love he loves his brother. That there's, it's not who do, whom does God love more in this, or whom does the father love more in this story. It's I love both of you. You've always been here. But he came home, and we have to celebrate this. So the older brother hears that you're not, you're not my son. You know, you're not my employee, you're my son. I welcome you. Everything I have is yours. So and the second complaint is this. When this son of yours squandered your property with prostitutes and he comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. So did you notice two things that I, really struck me? One is this son of yours. That's a disassociation. Like, he's my brother. 
But I, he, my brother died the day he left the house. Like, he's dead to me. I've, I've honestly gone weeks without thinking about him. I've moved beyond him. He's your son. He's not my brother. So he, dis, he distances himself relationally from him and refers to him in the context of his relationship with his son. And then he adds the prostitute part, because of course religious people always make it about sex, right? Like, there's, there's no reference in there of prostitutes until the older brother, in his imagination, like you can hear the younger brother be like, wait, he said what? No, I just threw parties, man. Like, what, what, where does he get these things? Uh, so he, again, the father pivots from the, the son of yours into relationship, this brother of yours. We have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. But look, he's alive. He's still a terrible dancer, but there he is. He's in there. He's alive. Uh, he's back. He was lost and he's found. Can't you see that your brother's home? Can't you hold in one hand all that he did and in the other, the fact that he's back with us and say, that's the good thing. That, that is what ought to be celebrated here today is his return. Nothing else matters. He didn't take your money. He took my money, and I'm throwing him a party. Come and join the party. Again, passive-aggressive, that's John. That's not God's heart. Um, but saying nothing else matters. I mentioned this last week, but part of the party is reconciliation of the younger son back to the community to mend those bridges and fences and say to the, to the whole community, this is my son, he's home. He's got my robe on, he's got my ring. Again, we're gonna act, at, we're, we're gonna welcome him home, celebrate his return, he's my son, and everything that he walked away from has been returned to him. That he, and the, the father says, this joy that brings the party, you're invited into it. There's joy right here. Come inside and take part of the joy. You can see, I mean, what does the son see that attracts his attention? It's a party. He sees music and dancing. So again, if there's any recovering Baptists here, what the father does is create the context for music and dancing. So uh, here we go. Settles that once and for all. The dancing, the whole dancing thing. You can smell the food, and, and that's what draws his attention is the party, the celebration, the joy. To come, welcome, come join in to the celebration. All you have to do is come inside. Come join the party. That's what the Father is inviting into. To, you can remain outside if you wish, or you can come inside to the joy of one returning home. The door is open. Come inside and join the party. And then it ends. There's no ending. We don't know what he does. What do you think he does? I don't know. It's careful to answer that question because it probably reveals something about us the way that we enter and answer that question. If we say no, he doesn't, well, maybe that's cynical behavior in, inside of me to think that no, people don't actually change. He just holds on to his bitterness all the way to the grave. I don't know. Um, but the ending is for us to write. Does he come inside? Does he choose to remain outside? There, I'll tell you right, right now, there are a lot of people that would rather hold on to their bitterness and anger, and whatever that means to them, or I, just, I should say us, as if that's not in my heart too, that there are some people 
I would rather stay outside and pout than to join into reconciliation with, that, uh, with God at the center of. Will his heart remain far from him, or will he enter into the joy of the Father? What does he have to do to go and to join in with, back to the family too? He just has to go inside. So all he has to do is enter into a moment of joy, celebration, food, music, and dancing. But the sounds of celebration are like metal on metal to his ears. He cannot tolerate because of who it's for. And he refuses to go inside. Um, Jesus leaves the ending open to us to, to answer that Will the teachers of the law come inside? Will the Pharisees, will we, will the Pharisee that lives in our hearts enter into the joy and the mercy and grace that is offered to us? It's let it go, come inside. Life is too short to miss any party that God is throwing. If God's throwing a party, you want to go inside. Whatever it is, you have to let go of. I mentioned last week that this party is about reconciling the younger brother back to the community. He has forgiven his son, and he is forming and shaping a community of people that join him in the reconciliation and the forgiveness. That what he is doing in pulling the older brother inside, what he's actually doing is the work of reconciliation. Will you put aside your grievances to come inside and to be Reconciled Because reconciliation is always a two-way street. There's forgiving. There's repenting. There's saying, I'm sorry. I forgive you. By the way, they say that the four hardest things to say are, I love you. I'm sorry. I forgive you. And what? And I was wrong. I was going to say Worcestershire sauce. But yes, I like yours better. I was, <laughs> I was, I was wrong. That there's... It's, it's hard to say, and, and, and at some level of each of those, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I love you, and I forgive you. There's a vulnerability in there. There's a rewriting of a script where I'm no longer the one that holds something over you, or I'm no longer the one who's defined by my past and my mistakes. And he refuses to be reconciled um, to his brother. Which is why, if I'm real, that's just, this is a bad Story. This is what I mean. You go, you pay movie. You pay, pay movie? Some words missing in there. You pay to go see a movie. And it's a story of reconciliation. So you imagine you go through it. You're, you're there in the bottom. You're feeding the pigs. The filmmaker is right there in the mud. You see him eating it. You turn your face away as you see him eating pig food. Like, you're, you're there in the middle of it. And then as he returns home, because you've been on his journey, and that, that's really important that we're going to talk about next week, that, that, that because he's been on this journey with the younger son, has seen him at the bottom, as you as a viewer see it, you're naturally on his side. And when he comes home, you're naturally weeping, crying. There's something moving in the story, in the party, the celebration. Everything is going. Uh, it's beautiful. It's this beautiful ending. And so you think, this is, this is a beautiful story, the party. But then the camera leaves the party, the lights, the sounds, the dancing, the smells. You can't smell in a movie theater, but you know what I'm saying. You move outside of the light into a darker space. The lighting changes. As your camera moves away, the, the music becomes more muted, like the guy living up above you listening to music or something. It's just like, you just hear the bass notes. And, and there it is, the older son standing in the shadow, angry, refusing to go inside. 
And out comes the father, the father who looks for sons, the father who goes out searching for the lost, finds them, and invites them inside. Son, you've, you've been here the whole time. Everything that's mine is yours. Come into the party. And then goes to the older son, and then the credits roll. And you're like, wait, what? What? You can't roll the credits right now. We need, we need satisfaction and conclusion. Then there's all these think pieces about, was his face one of turning? That little, if you look in the corner of his mouth, he's like, well, maybe. And, and, you know, and you know, so everybody's like debating endlessly online about what the filmmaker intended, what that look means. But that's, that's why this is not a story. This is a parable. And it's meant to invite us into a space where we write the ending, not with our imagination, but with our lives to live out the ending of the story as the older brother who joins in the reconciliation that God is doing. The, the end of this story, of this parable, is an invitation for the listeners to come in and join the party, to join in forgiveness singing, songs of people coming home, celebrating. I read this rather long article called The Limits of Forgiveness by Elizabeth Brunig. She starts with some pretty pointed questions that she asked herself about why um, she, she talks about some, something that happened and how she, she could not forgive that. But then she heard a story of, uh, of a mother who killed herself and her children and, and a husband who said, forgive her, we are not defined by our lowest moments. And she said, why am I prone to forgive murder when I'm really having a hard time over here in this other space? What is it about forgiveness? Why do some things stick in us? that are particularly hard to forgive. So she goes through this journey and she's like, you know what, I'm a journalist. I'm gonna read all the research, all the stories. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrestle with, 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 with so much of uh, our country needing to go through a time of racial reconciliation, of whether or not forgiveness puts an, an unfair burden on the oppressed communities um, to, to respond to, to us and our... So she, she goes through it all. It's a, it's a brilliant article, but I don't wanna interact with the whole thing. I wanna read what she says at the end. She says this. Perhaps the most important thing about this broad reading of forgiveness is it recommends not so much a specific kind of practice as a specific kind of person, a forgiving kind. It isn't so much that every case of wrongdoing ought to be forgiven on the same terms or in the same ways as much as every case ought to be viewed with a forgiving eye, approached with an openness to transformation. He says, I was, she says, I was looking for a formula. And there's no formula out there. Every journey is different. But what it takes are people who are wired and open to forgiveness. And she, the other really helpful thing she talks about in this, in this article, again, Elizabeth Brunig uh, called The Limits of Forgiveness, is the way that we don't live in a time and space where forgiveness is held as something that's important. That mercy as a value of forgiving, of reconciliation as an important part of the journey. This, that celebrates the returns of the younger brother, that extends mercy and forgiveness, that God throws a party of reconciliation and the invitation for us to come inside, join the party, celebrate, say to, to one another, no debt is so big that it outweighs my desire to be in a relationship with you. That nothing has been done here. That I mean, stuff has to be owned. There, there's a journey. That's what she's acknowledging in the article. This is a journey. No, no, no two stories of forgiveness are the same. 
but an openness to the redemptive power of forgiveness and mercy. To be people who seek to forgive and to be a community that celebrate forgiveness and reconciliation. To be a forgiven person, to become a forgiving people, because wherever there's forgiveness, there's a party. So come to the table, to the singing songs of mercy and forgiveness. For now, you have been forgiven. And the calling to forgive others is no burden if you remember that little thing. That the way, as I was praying this morning, the prayer I found in my heart was this. It was, um, Father, make me know that I'm the least deserving person to receive your love. And what I like about that, what I'm trying to cultivate and sit in that is least, what did I say? Deserving, thank you. Thank you, brain. Least deserving. What that does is I think that, that undercuts the temptation of religion to think of myself as morally superior. I'm the least deserving. I don't deserve it. If anybody deserves it, I'm at the back of the line. But then, on the other hand, to receive, to understand, but I am loved, I am forgiven, and I'm reconciled. And as I hold in my one hand, I don't deserve it. In the other, God is merciful. Then I am free to forgive others as, I'm, as I've been forgiven. We were dead. We've made alive again. So come to the table, to the banquet prepared for you. And as you return to your seat, ask God this question. To whom are you reconciling me? And how can I show them the mercy that you've shown me? If you can learn to pray that prayer, you'll be just fine. Let's pray together. Father, May we ask over and over again, whom are you reconciling me towards? And how can I show them mercy? Lord, we've been shown so much mercy and love. We've been welcomed home. Everything that is yours, you've been given to us. May we celebrate and rejoice to those who share the joy of coming home, of being reconciled. Transform us through your love into people of love. Heal us through your forgiveness that we might heal others. For life is too short to hold grudges. And the party that you're throwing is too beautiful and too good for us to stand outside in the dark. Thank you for inviting us in through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.